Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. You know what I think? I think you should cough and get it out of the way now. Do you think so? Yeah, just... (coughs) How's that? (laughs) So that is Eric Motley, right. who has coughed to introduce himself. Okay. <laughs> he is the author of a book called Madison Park, A Place of Hope. I, I have two ways I can go in terms of your introduction. All right. I can go with the introduction from the book jacket. You like that one. Oh, that's a nice one. All right. It says, Eric Motley grew up in the freed slaves town of Madison Park, Alabama. From this beginning in the black community, he rose to become a special assistant to President George W. Bush Eric is an executive vice president of the Aspen Institute based in Washington, D.C. He is a graduate of Samford University and as a Rotary International Ambassadorial Scholar at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He earned a Master of Letters and a Ph.D. as the John Stephen Watson Scholar. It's very impressive. Well, I couldn't have written it better myself. All right. I have a okay. preferred introduction though, right. for you. And it also comes from your book. Okay. I'm ready. This one goes something like this. There is a new kid named Eric Motley who's smart and equally eccentric. He walks very fast. He loves ginger ale and doesn't drink alcohol or smoke. 
He always sits in the front row. He hasn't missed a day of school in his whole life. He alternates between Cordovan penny loafers and white Reeboks, looking more reminiscent of the 50s than the 90s. He carries a briefcase and a can of Lysol everywhere he goes. Now, that's a much better introduction. Because now the audience is wondering, well, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) And why Lysol? (laughs) Yeah, why Lysol? You know, my grandmother was always spraying. She just had this aversion towards getting sick. And um, Says the man coughing. So the man coughing. Someone else, you know, gave this to me. And um, she always sprayed down everything, doorknobs, uh, instruments throughout the house with Lysol. And I just thought, I've never missed school before. It's a Lysol. But this is a snapshot of you as a school student. That this is, this a, is yes. not, you know, this is not you today. Right. That's high school. Correct. Yes. I mean, and, and I can say it now that I'm setting eyes on you because you write about it. Urkel. You're, yes. you're Urkel. I am. And I you was. Em- and you embraced that. I did. I did. <clears throat> I was unashamed to be uh, Eric Motley with whatever it brought, the minuses and pluses. I was determined. I was focused. I was eager, enthusiastic, and uh, and maybe at times quite weird. The book that you have written is very much a memoir, but as much about the place mm. of your birth and your upbringing as it is about Dr. Eric Motley today. What, what exactly is Madison Park? Where is it? What is it? Define it. Madison Park is a community, and a community in the most beautiful idea of the word. It was founded in 1880 by a group of freed slaves who had nothing except the clothes on their back and a little money. And like stone soup, they all came out and shared their resources. And they followed a guy named Eli, Eli Madison, who could read and write. And his great dream was to buy a plantation and to make it work and to create a community where these individuals could realize their own pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And so in many ways, Michael, this is a love letter to a place that was founded by a group of people who had nothing but dreams and aspirations to live into the promise of being Americans and who gave this land and the space to generations that followed. I'm one of those descendants. My grandfather, George Washington Motley's grandfather, John Wesley Motley, was one of those early pioneers who set claim on this new land. And in Madison Park, you were raised by your grandparents. I was raised by my grandparents, not reared, but raised by my grandparents on the same piece of land. You make that point, by the way, in the book. It's very important for you to say that. I mean, we grew up in the country, and so you raised animals, you raised crops, you raised trees. You gave full attention to everything that you were trying to raise, and you cultivated it, and you nurtured the seed, and you prayed for rain and all the ingredients of nature. And so my grandparents, as well as the people of Madison Park, were very much involved in this kind of uh, raising of Eric Motley. Describe for all of us the house in which you were raised. I was raised on the very foundation that my grandfather's grandfather laid claim to in 1880. My grandfather in 1943 rebuilt that house, a large white southern house with green shutters and a back porch and a front porch with a lot of rocking chairs and a lot of oak trees and pecan trees and maple trees surrounding the entire premise two acres, and a half an acre in the back to grow vegetables for the three of us. Is it fair to say that the book the book had been on your mind, and, and maybe you'd, you'd begun working on the book, but along comes the Washington Post. They took an interest in you. They wrote a very lengthy profile yeah. of Eric Motley, yeah. and that was the impetus for you to say, I'm going to write that book and finish it. I wanted to write the book because I wanted to pay tribute to all these people who had meant so much to me in my development in Madison Park. <clears throat> 
many of whom were still alive, but I also wanted to pay tribute to the founders of this very special place. And I wanted to celebrate this idea of what freed slaves could do on their own without support from government by working together and supporting one another and creating a, a safety net. I also wanted to tell the story which I felt was very important about how these individuals, that narrative of place, how that narrative of place intersected with my own personal narrative, and how this community and its descendants supported me in my educational pursuits and helped me to realize my own potential and pushed me and encouraged me to realize that to whom much is given, much is required. If there's one word that I would use to describe the book, having read and enjoyed it, it would be mentorship. There are any number of people who took you under their wing. Why, by the way? Why you? You know, I think my grandparents unashamedly made me a community project. Martin Luther King says we're all a part of this inescapable network of mutuality. We're tied in a single garment of destiny. It's that John Donne idea that no man is an island to himself, and so they made it known to everyone. We got this kid. We want to nurture his human potential and, and character. We want him to be a citizen of Madison Park and other world, but we need your help. And I think because of their encouragement and their uh, motivation, that certainly impacted the way I thought about embracing every opportunity. And so if you're open, I think people reach out to embrace you. And uh, we made it known that I was open. There's a vignette far into the book that says, On the morning of March 19, 2001, I stood in front of the White House, peering once again through the gates. Mm. I was carrying the old briefcase that Mrs. Pat Wilson, a former teacher, had quote-unquote lent me in seventh grade. Tell me about Mrs. Wilson and the briefcase. Well, Mrs. Wilson was one of my—I was moved into an accelerated learners group in uh, junior high school and high school. It was a special kids, and we got a little individual attention from Mrs. Wilson with readings and— um, And she gave me a briefcase to carry with me to the Model UN Forum. And she said, it's my husband's briefcase. I want you to to give it back to me afterwards. And I think she just thought I looked so well-suited with this briefcase because I took it everywhere that I never returned it because she never asked for it. And um, when I went away to college, I had the briefcase. And she said to me, I think it's about time that I just give you the briefcase. And so your first day of work at the White House? My first day of the White House, I'm going through the gates with the suit that my dean purchased me, a tie that my former university president gave me, uh, a shirt that my grandparents bought me, and the briefcase that Pat Wilson gave me. There's a photograph in the book that really jumped out at me. You speak of of six women who tutored you. I think four of them were in the picture. This was before, I guess, you were in that accelerated program. Who were they and what happened? So, Michael, when I was growing up in Madison Park, I was known as Little Einstein. I doubt if people really knew who Einstein was, but he was pretty impressive. Until I got to first grade, and the teacher wrote a note home to my grandmother informing her that I had been demoted from a rabbit to a turtle, from, you know, the accelerated readers to the slow readers. And my grandmother called the only person in the community that she thought could provide some wise counsel. Her name was Emma Bell, Emma Madison Bell, the granddaughter of Eli Madison. She was in her 70s, having retired some 45 years already as a retired teacher. She looked at the note, and all I heard her say to my grandmother was, we believe in resurrection. We'll take care of this. And so she organized a tutorial program where she and her two sisters and her sister-in-law, these other three women, would come by the Motley House every afternoon for two hours to tutor me. And what was so remarkable was that every session began with my having to commit to memory 
and recitate recite the Declaration of Independence, a preamble, the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, <laughs> and the Apostles' Creed to remind me of my faith, and James Weldon Johnson's Lift Every Voice and Sing. Then we would go to Latin, we would go to mathematics, to social studies, and to world history. It was so important to them that my educational development was also a logical outgrowth of my understanding that my grandfather's grandfather and other freed slaves came here to pursue their dreams as Americans. This is your heritage. Claim it, own it, and know it. I love this picture. Carrie Madison, how do I say it? Saya? Carrie Madison Say. Say. Uh, Prince Ella Madison, Emma Madison Bell, that would also be Aunt Shine. That is correct. And Frankie Lee Madison Winston. Yeah. These women. These women. Are the ones who turned you around. They, they made me a rabbit again. And Aunt Princella just died two years ago at 104. And so she was one of the last of that group of women, these tutors, who actually saw me graduate with my Ph.D. from Scotland, move to Washington, D.C., work at the White House, go to the State Department, and come to the Aspen Institute. And her last words to me... To whom much is given, much is required. So do you feel some sense of obligation? You give back, you give back by re- writing, I think, this book. But Eric Motley is no longer living in Madison Park. I guess they always knew that, right? That, they knew that, that. As they saw your right. ascension, that this is a guy we're right. going to lose. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. 
there's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest Internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Eric Motley is no longer living in Madison Park. I guess they always knew that, right? That, they that, that. as they saw your right. ascension, that this is a guy we're right. going to lose. This is a guy that we're going to lose, but this is a guy that believes in community and will create community wherever he goes because we have taught him the value and power of community. But when you leave Madison Park, you really don't leave Madison Park. And I go back twice a year now, no relatives living there, but friends, to visit the graves of my grandparents, uh, to express community to those uh, childhood friends that I grew up with who are still there, and to celebrate our rich heritage. There were, I think, a total of 18 secretaries of defense for Boys Nation. You make a trip to Washington, D.C. How old were you? Gosh, I would have been... 18 at the time. And you meet the real Secretary of Defense. In Dick fact, Cheney. <laughs> in fact, he lets you sit in the chair and use the phone. Tell, tell everybody what happened. Well, it's, it's a very humorous story. My grandmother had never allowed me to travel outside of Madison Park without the chaperones from the church, church trips, uh, usually Aunt Princella. And so she was a bit hesitant that I was going to Washington, D.C. And this was Washington, D.C. Uh, in the 1990s, really kind of dangerous and uh, exciting place. And so um, she said, you're going with these boys, you stay with these boys, this is Boys Nation, and you don't venture away. And so I'm sitting in Dick Cheney's chair at the MacArthur desk, and he says to me, is there anyone you want to phone? And I said, well, sure, I'll phone my teacher. I try Mrs. Mays, my speech teacher, no answer. Uh, What about your parents? Do do you want to phone your grandparents? And I, I hesitantly picked up the phone, and I said, well, sure, Mr. Secretary. I phone my grandmother, and she answers. And she says, where are you? And I said, I'm, uh, yes, great, I'm at the Pentagon. Where is the Pentagon? I thought you were in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I said, oh, yes, 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 the Pentagon. I'm with the Secretary of Defense. Who? Who's the Secretary? I said, yes, Dick Cheney, trying to muffle sure. the confusion on my end and didn't want Dick Cheney to know that my grandmother had the slightest idea who he was. And she says, you better find your way back with those boys. I said, yes, yes. And, and Dick Cheney leaned over as if he wanted to pick up the telephone. And I oh, said, no. well, you got to go? Yes, I understand. All right, love <laughs> you. Okay, bye. <laughs> and, you know, to her, uh, she had no awareness of who Dick Cheney was. And, uh, and, of course, I was in high school, and I had some understanding of what was going on in the world. And it just was a reminder to me many years later when I was in Washington, D.C., that no matter how important you think you are, 
there are a lot of people who don't know that you exist. Not soon, yeah. a- not soon after you begin working for President George W. Bush, you are very soon in the Oval Office. It's a pinch yourself kind of yeah. moment. I've come from from these humble roots, and look at me now. Did you ever tell Dick Cheney the story of being at his desk when he was Secretary of Defense? I did. I <clears throat> we were leaving the Oval Office after a briefing, and I said, "Mr. Secretary, you probably have." Mr. Vice President, you probably have no recollection of our having met before. And he just looked at me and I said, I have a photograph that's in my (laughs) office that I would like to bring over. And he said, well, tell me about the meeting, Eric. And I told him about the meeting. And he said, well, why don't you bring the photograph over? And why don't we take a new photograph all these years later with your sitting at my desk in the vice president's office? Awesome. Yeah. We have very few conversations, but that was one that I will certainly remember. Okay. Someone else who who took you under his wing at least for two hours, Justice Clarence Thomas. Wow. This is incredible. Yes. I was in high school. It was 1991. The hearings for Justice Thomas, the Supreme Court nomination hearings were taking place. Ernestine White, my uh, high school history and government teacher, had us to watch these proceedings every day. And at the end, we had to write a paper. And I was quite taken by the personal narrative of Clarence Thomas, the personal narrative. Here was this black young man who grew up in Georgia, uh, never met his father. His grandparents and grandmother, grandfather and grandmother reared him raised him, I guess you would say. They focused on his having an understanding of community and the importance of education and how education could be the upward mobility to transport him to worlds unknown. And they just really had a lot of focus. And he stayed focused. And he went to Holy Cross. Then he went to Yale Law School. And he committed himself to public service. And so I could identify. I grew up in a poor African-American community in Montgomery, Alabama, My mother had me as a teenager at age 19, having been adopted by this family when she was nine. George Washington Motley and his wife, Mamie Motley, then adopt me, take me under their their care, and focus on my getting an education and providing me every opportunity that would equip me intellectually, civically, and spiritually for the world before me. I could identify. So I was asked by the superintendent of the school system, what I was going to write my paper on. And I said, I'd like to kind of look at Clarence Thomas's personal narrative and how that manifested itself into his judicious uh, philosophy. And um, unbeknownst to me, the superintendent reached out to my senator, Richard Shelby, who then reached out to Danforth and passed a letter to him saying, there's a young man in Montgomery, Alabama, that I think would enjoy meeting Clarence Thomas. Four days later, I get a telephone call from Dorothy, who's a secretary to Clarence Thomas and his chambers, inviting me to come up to Washington, D.C. I was going up on a 4-H conference uh, convening, and I made it work. And he had me into his, his office for about 20, 25 minutes. I sat and I interviewed him, tape recorder, notebook in hand. And it was less about <clears throat> Anita Hill and the entire, but it was more about his own personal journey, his own Uh, personal journey from Georgia to Yale University to public service. And it was powerful. What I remember, he had a portrait that he had just hung over his fireplace of Frederick Douglass. And on his desk, he had a little sign that said, Old Man Can't is Dead. Right. And I helped bury him. I love that. And that was what his grandmother. Old Man Can't is Dead. dead, And I I helped bury bury him. him. There are no can'ts. There's only a world of possibility. We live in hope and promise. And so Clarence Thomas kept in touch with me. He ended up visiting me in college. 
and speaking at my university. Uh, I went away to Scotland. He wrote me letters encouraging me to continue to pursue my educational pursuits. And uh, when I moved to Washington, uh, welcomed me over to the chambers for a coffee. It's amazing to me, and, and we've, we've identified some of them, but not even all. We haven't s- scratched the surface. By the way, Madison Park, A Place of Hope, is the book. Eric Motley is the author. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124, and on the SXM app. Madison Park, A Place of Hope, is the book. Eric Motley is the author, but so many... So many were impressed by you and then extended themselves mm-hmm. on your behalf. I promise we won't give it all away, right. but but there there are a number of interesting encounters in the book, none more interesting to me than you as a young man making weekly visits to the library, mm-hmm. and there's an old guy in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Share it. So we were too poor to afford books, and my grandfather wanted me to get a good education, and so... At a very early age, probably at age eight, he started transporting me into the city of Montgomery. We were in the city limits, but barely. And it was about a 25-minute drive into the city. And he would drive to the Montgomery Public Library, and he would sit in the car and wait on me to go in for a couple of hours. And he organized other neighbors who were farmers and plumbers, uh, domestics, to drive me in on Saturdays to the library. On this one occasion, I go in, and I'm sitting there with a pyramid of books around me. How old are you? I'm about nine years old. I'm in the library. I'm uh, taking notes. And I look up, and three tables in front of me, or three tables between me and this other individual, is an elderly white man in a wheelchair with a black valet attendant standing at his side turning pages. And I would look up, and the guy would drop his head. And he would look up, and I would drop my head. And every now and then, we (laughs) caught each other's glance. And after about two hours, a librarian came over and said, all right, Motley boy, you got to go. We're closing up. And as I was gathering my books in the satchel that I had taken with me, uh, he looked up at me, and he nodded, a long stare and a long nod. And I looked at him. And as I raced down the stairs out to the car, my grandfather sitting in his Chevrolet Apollo, too poor to, to turn on the radio fearing that it would run down the battery, no air conditioning, a hot July day. And I said, you would never guess who I just met in the library. And wanting to play the guessing game, he said, who? Tell me who. And too eager to let him know that I had just encountered George Wallace. You know? You didn't speak to him. Didn't speak just to all him. body language and communication. It was as if he was affirming... That I know that you're here. And the great irony is that my grandfather could never psychologically and emotionally go into that library. This was the embodiment of imprisonment in George Wallace. I mean, everything that we had hoped for as citizens in Montgomery, Alabama, George Wallace had stood in the way of. Uh, The library, my mother was not allowed to go into because she was black. My grandfather sitting out in the car because he could not emotionally go into a place that he had been barred from all of his life. And here I... And coming out of the library, kind of the embodiment of the future, the promise of the future, hope, having just encountered the very person who had embodied everything that stood in the way of our progress. And yet, as, yeah. as you point out, later in life, uh, African-Americans were very forgiving of George Wallace. Oh, very forgiving. And he yeah. won a majority of, of their vote. Yeah. You know, I, I think, as Aunt Shine said in uh, that moment in the kitchen, we believe in resurrection. We believe that history has a very long arc. And... And that we're saved by hope. 
and we're saved with an understanding of faith in history. And I think that moment in the library was a reminder that time and progress marches on, and we have to embrace it. Eric, I was um, uh, taken with a line in the profile of the Washington Post that I already mentioned that gave rise to you saying, okay, I'm going I'm to finish this book. And it was you saying, I'm tired of that word sellout. Mm. How, how is all this success of yours and mentorship by people of color as well as whites, how is it received among African Americans? And, and explain to me what you meant by being tired of that word sellout. You know, I, I think this book has been wonderfully received in the African American community. It's been wonderfully received because it's a story about how a group of African-American slaves, liberated slaves, made America work for themselves. And I think my embracement from people to a large degree has been because I've not forgotten Madison Park. I've carried it with me, but I go back. And I'm investing very much in in the place physically and economically uh, and the students that are there helping to mentor them. I think a great amount of frustration had been inspired by those who would criticize one for having different political views and and political ideologies and who took a different path uh, professionally or politically or ideologically. And I think if anything, my rebuttal is that those tutors in Madison Park gave me the freedom to think for myself and to, in a very reasonable way, discern the writing on the wall and to decide for myself independently what was good and what was bad and what was right. And education is an empowerment. And um, and I think I've tried to articulate that in this book, Madison Park, A Place of Hope, uh, that the place is very much a part of me, but the place has also empowered me to be my own individual and to be true to my own self and my own inward desires and sensibilities. I thought of two other books as I was reading yours, which might not seem a natural fit or comparison for mm-hmm. someone who served in the, the W administration. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking of Hillary's It Takes a Village, right. which yes. I think has some applicability to your story from so. Madison Park, and Dreams from My Father. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this book to me is a search for your identity, yeah. very much in similar fashion, different stories to uh, President Obama, looking for, for his own roots and looking at his own roots. You know, it does. If you asked me for a blurb, I'd have worked in both of them. Yeah, it does take a village, and uh, and Secretary Clinton very much articulated that. Marion Wright Edelman also wrote a wonderful book, Lanterns, and it talks about the mentors along her way. Uh, President Obama's uh, story, in many ways, is like my story. It's an odyssey of grace and gratitude. Eric, thrilled to have you. The book is titled Madison Park, A Place of Hope. Really well done. Thank you very much, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, for being in studio with us. Thank you for having me. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. 
Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.